Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm your host, Isabella Farr, and today we're launching our three-part series focused on South Florida. Our first episode looks at the Surfside condo collapse, four months after the disaster. Susanna Cavanaugh speaks with South Florida reporter Catherine Kolurgis on the potential causes of the fall, the players being held accountable, and how the catastrophe shook the region's real estate market. So Catherine, I know in the first few days after the collapse of the Surfside Tower, there were a lot of questions about how something like that could happen. And just to recap, a portion of the building called Champlain Tower South pancaked in the middle of the night on June 24th, killing nearly 100 people. And soon after, an investigation was opened up. So I wanted to know what agency took that on and how... Has it played out so far? So the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is the same federal agency that looked into the collapse of the World Trade Centers on 9-11, was tasked with leading the investigation into the Surfside tragedy. What I think is kind of important to understand is that it was a search and rescue operation for so long, and the priority was obviously on the recovery of people still missing. Two weeks after the collapse, the rest of the building was brought down in a controlled demolition which added just like tons of debris that had to be cleared from the site. So NIST or NIST formed a team of experts to determine what caused the collapse. And they're analyzing the property, the debris, the original plans, everything that could have led to what happened on June 24th. So the agency is also looking at how something like this could be prevented from happening again. And they will eventually make suggestions as to changes with legislation, building codes, and other regulations. Since the collapse, a number of buildings have been declared unsafe in South Florida, and I think beyond South Florida, as cities and counties have been sending inspectors out to some of the older properties first to look at, you know, what problems they may have. Do the buildings need to be shut down basically until they can fix their their issues and reopen? But something interesting to to take into account is that the town of Surfside is also being looked at for its possible role into potentially ignoring problems that they they knew about and their role, obviously, in in the collapse. Oh, wow. Okay. So at this point, what have we learned about what might have caused the collapse? So the government's investigation into it will will take a long time to complete. I I would guess, you know, and people have, have estimated years. But a number of reports have described factors that likely either caused or, you know, contributed to the building coming down unexpectedly. Days after the collapse, the town of Surfside released reports from the engineering firm that the building had hired to um, survey the building for its 40-year recertification. So the 40-year recertification, very briefly, is something that's required in Miami-Dade and Broward counties in South Florida that basically brings the building up to code once, once it turns 40 years old and they have to address any issues that may be outstanding. And then after that, they do inspections every 10 years after. So Champlain was was kind of in the middle of starting its 40-year recertification, and they knew about, the association and the unit owners knew about major errors in the original design of the building, which dated back to the early 1980s. That included concrete spalling and cracking, failed waterproofing below the pool deck that was causing major structural damage. There had been complaints about leaking in the garage. Um, And then there was actually one other thing that was kind of crazy, but there was a building inspector, and this came out too, that had assured um, residents and owners at a meeting years ago, an association meeting years ago, that the building was, was fine. 
what stands out to me there is that there are problems with this building dating back almost 40 years, which is pretty significant, but they were overlooked. Maintaining these buildings is is so important to their, you know, to their health. I remember speaking with experts after the collapse who compared, you know, they would, they would compare a building to a person. So if somebody never goes to the doctor and or if issues are ignored, you know, it, it can be catastrophic. What about the construction that was happening on the building next door? That building is called 87 Park. The developer, which is a partnership led by Tara, had come to a, an agreement with the city of Miami Beach to take over an alley that separated the two sites. And it basically moved the footprint of the tower closer to Champlain. Um, so if you look at it on Google Maps, for example, it's very striking how close the properties are now versus how the former building on the 87 Park site was in relation to Champlain. And residents of Champlain had complained about the vibrations um, caused by the construction of 87 Park. They complained about debris that was in their pool deck and their drains. And they had spoken up at city meetings. They'd voiced their concerns to the town of Surfside and the city of Miami Beach. So I want to turn now to the condo market in South Florida. I can imagine that all of the players in that market, the developers, the landlords, the residents were shaken by the collapse, even if they weren't directly impacted by it. So I'm curious, you know, how did those folks who were tied to the market in some way feel the effects of the disaster? There were so many things. Um, people were posting, you know, photos of of similar looking damage to their buildings, especially, you know, oceanfront properties that will take more of a beating from the salt water, from the wind, you know, from, from the elements. A lot of buildings were inspected. Some were ordered evacuated by, you know, their landlords or government officials. There's been a rush to address major repair work, you know, in buildings that had been ignored. And some developers have also been increasingly targeting older properties. And by that, I mean that they will try to buy all the units to eventually knock it, knock a building down and then, and then redevelop it. Um, I heard from some sources that buildings over a certain age on Collins Avenue have been, you know, have all been targets basically. And Collins Avenue is like the street that runs parallel to the ocean. There was one buyout in particular that stands out that closed this summer, the buyout of uh, Carlton Terrace, which is an oceanfront building in Bell Harbor. Um, another town that's north of Miami Beach. Um, and I spoke with the broker who can tell us a bit more about what goes into a successful buyout. So you are, you're, you're Jared Turkel. Am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> yep, you got it. Um, and you're a broker with Berkadia. Yes. Um, how does a buyout work? Well, I mean, the, the key to a buyout really is um, when you have a situation where you have a condo and the land that the condo sits on is is more valuable than the existing condos. Properties that would be candidates for buyout are usually older buildings that may not be as high value as a newer building. And also properties that if the underlying zoning for a piece of land, say on the ocean, lets you build 100 units, and there's only, let's say, 20 units built there, the fact that the property is not built to its full development capacity would also make it a good candidate for a buyout. And I would think oceanfront properties too are, are, are more desirable to developers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's an instance where particularly, you know, brand new oceanfront property, say in a city like Miami, could be selling for, you know, 
2000 2500 or maybe $3,000 per square foot for a brand new top of the line building. Whereas there's a big discount for an older building. They say it's a 60, 70, 80 year old building. Those are not going to be anywhere close to the, that valuation as, as the new condos. Is it easier now to convince unit owners to sell because of, in part because of the collapse or are you, are you not finding that? Yeah, I think to an extent, there's definitely some some concern with folks living in older buildings, given what happened with Surfside. But really, I mean, I, I think it comes down to economics. So if the condos in a building are selling for $500,000 per condo, let's say, but if a developer thinks they can knock that condo down, build something at $2,000 a foot, they can afford to pay a million dollars per unit. So now you have a situation where you know, these, these unit owners could have a pretty substantial windfall. Um, if they're able to organize themselves, band together and sell, you know, in bulk. And they have to reach, the developer has to reach a, a majority, right? What is it like 95%, right? It's, okay. o- it's often about 80%, 80 to 85%. So do you go into a building, like, do you go door to door to talk to unit owners? Like, what is your strategy? What, what, do, what do brokers do? Well, there's a couple different ways to do it. The way most brokers, or at least that, that I know of, have been doing it is they hook up with a developer and they pick one developer, let's say, and they go approach the unit owners with offers on their units. So that developer says, hey, this building's worth $100 million. There's 100 units, let's say. We're going to go offer everybody a million dollars, see if we can get 80, 85% of them. What I did on, on my last one, which is the Carlton Terrace deal in Bell Harbor is a little bit different. I was actually asked by the board to present kind of my thoughts and, and strategy and qualifications on how they should go about selling to a developer. And instead of coming to the board with a developer in my, my hand or my pocket, uh, I flip, we flipped it. And we said, well, instead of kind of representing the buyer, let's represent the sellers. And so we then went and signed listing agreements with the sellers in the building. And we were able to put together, I think we ended up with 40, 45 listing agreements in the building out of a total of 88. And what we did is we cut a 50% of that building as a, as a listing and represented the sellers. And we went out to 20 or 30 different developers and then put together an offering package and had them compete and put forth their best offer. And I think that's a, a great way to approach these things because you, know, you have a situation where you have sophisticated developers trying to cut big deals with non-sophisticated you know, condo unit owners. And 99% of the time, the brokers are representing the buyers. So I think that uh, representing the sellers was, a, was a, a different way to do this. And I think it was a good result. I remember when I was reporting on that story that I think um, I had heard that that was like the ninth or 10th, maybe the ninth takeover attempt for the Carlton Terrace. So yeah, it's, it sounds like it finally worked. <laughs> it, it finally worked. It wasn't easy. Is there still um, a sense of urgency among owners of older units that they, you know, maybe facing big special assessment or, um, or just generally repairs that have to get done that they, they want to band together and sell? Are you still seeing kind of like that same desire? Um, I think that there's an increase in concern for sure because of the Surfside uh, incident. Additionally, some of these buildings are being cited as unsafe structures. And yeah, there's been special assessments, et cetera, which, um, you know, can be substantial. Um, you know, it's still not easy to terminate these buildings because you need, you know, 80 or 90% of the people to agree. And you have a building with, I don't know, 100, 200 people. Uh, it's hard to get 80 to 90% of people to agree on anything, much less all selling their their home. But I, I do think that there's definitely some some additional motivations out there for deals like this to get done, for sure. 
part of the problem now is that even though developers will often pay above market value in some cases, you know, it's two to three times what a seller would typically get. The people who are selling are, you know, are likely being displaced. Like they won't be able to afford a comparable unit that's oceanfront, like in the same area, they will probably have to move inland or, you know, leave, leave South Florida altogether. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about is what is going to happen with the Champlain Towers South property? The site is going to be auctioned off early next year between February and March. There is a stocking horse bidder, a Dubai developer, that offered to pay $120 million for the property and likely build a new luxury project on the site. And we're going to be looking at that in part two of our Surfside series, which airs two weeks from now. So tune in then. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me, Susanna, or Catherine at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're continuing our series on South Florida by looking at contentious redevelopment plans for Miami Beach's Ocean Drive and how a new 2 a.m. lost call for alcohol will affect bars and restaurants along the street.